Christ through the ages, three. Since Christ is the beginning of the world, he's at the very foundation of the universe. We know him as the divine Lord of history. And because God reveals himself in the inspired scriptures, it's reasonable that we find traces of the Christ, the Messiah, in both portions of scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the next three podcasts, we will recognize how the Old Testament points to Christ. Christ visible in the Old Testament law. There's one place where Jesus is conversing with the leaders of the Jewish people, and he acknowledges, as they do, that the scriptures that they search, that's the Hebrew Bible, speak of him. They testify about him. He speaks to his followers after his resurrection in Luke 24 and indicates that all three parts of the Bible of the Jews speak of him, the law, the prophets, the Psalms. The three sections of the Hebrew Bible would be the Torah, the first five books, the prophets, which is really everything from Joshua on except for what are called the writings, and the third section, the writings, the most prominent of which is Psalms. The order is slightly different than what we have in our Bibles, but the books would be the same. And in Luke 24, Jesus opens their eyes so that they can see that all three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures speak of him. And the result is that their hearts are burning, they're amazed, and they see him more clearly. Now, interestingly, the Old Testament is often more easily understood looking backward than looking forward. It, it says in 1 Peter 1 that often the prophets themselves weren't really sure fully of the extent of what they prophesied. Uh, not only were the prophets somewhat in the dark, even angels longed to look into such things. But from the perspective of what we know as Christians, of the crucifixion and the resurrection, from our post-Easter perspective, in other words, we are able to look at the Old Testament with a very different understanding, much fuller. And that's why it is said that the Old Testament is more easily understood uh, reading forward, looking forward, than looking backward. Now, I don't want any of these podcasts to be overly academic. I want them to challenge our thinking. But the underlying aim is to keep our focus on the Lord, that we can appreciate Christ through the ages, and that we can make practical biblical applications. Well, all I propose to do now is to share a few ideas of the ways in which the Torah point to Jesus Christ. And I'll mention something in each of the five books from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Let's begin with Genesis 3. In the passage where the man and the woman are blamed for their sin, there's a very interesting prophecy. Uh, some would say that this is the, the first place that the gospel appears. Well, at least a prophecy of Christ, because it says that he will bruise your head. You'll strike at his heel, but, but he'll bruise your head. And here's the Lord speaking of the descendant of Eve, who will deal a wound to this serpent. Now, if there's any doubt that that refers to 
to Jesus, read Revelation chapter 12, and you'll see that the, that serpent has been wounded, and he, in fact, will not recover from it. It's, it's a mortal wound, though Genesis 12, uh, Revelation 12, refers, uh, I believe, to the mortal blow dealt by virtue of Jesus's death and resurrection. That would fulfill what's said in Genesis 3. Now, Genesis 12, we have the promises God makes to Abraham that through him, the nations of the world would be blessed. The peoples would be blessed. The Gentiles would be blessed. Not just the Jews, but all peoples. All right? Remember, there's a, a land promise, a nation promise, but there's a promise of spiritual blessing that the whole world be blessed through Abraham. And most would say that the mainstream of history, biblically speaking, begins with Abraham, who first appears in chapter 11. In chapter 12, those first few verses, the Lord makes a promise to Abraham. As we know, this promise is reiterated to Isaac, who's Abraham's son, and through Jacob, and then through Jacob's 12 sons, particularly Judah. And that's the, uh, in the, lineage, that's the lineage of Jesus Christ. Uh, through Abraham, in other words, through his ancestors, the whole world would be blessed. And, and that's, it's important. We, we often have a bit of a disconnect. As Christians, we don't think of ourselves as really being the heirs of the promises to Abraham, to the patriarchs. But if we become Christians, we're grafted in and we're part of this. We, we inherit biblical history. If you have any doubt about that, read Galatians, read Hebrews. Another place that the early um, evangelists could have used, I think, to win over their, um, the Jewish brothers. And when I say the, the Jewish brothers, I don't, I, I don't mean that they didn't reach out to Gentiles. But the evidence seems when they reached out to Gentiles, they didn't quote the Old Testament expecting its brilliance or authority would, uh, would win over the, the unbeliever, the pagan. But the church was in dialogue with Judaism for a long time, and Jews accepted the authority of the Scripture. If you doubt this, just compare Paul's speeches, say, in Acts 13 to the one in Acts 17. The the Jewish background uh, audience versus the Gentile background audience. These are passages that we're looking at. Anything in the law would have been very helpful to win over the Jews. Well, in chapter 14, it's another Abrahamic passage. It's quite unusual because he's coming back from war, and that's unusual enough. We don't think of Abraham as being a warrior. It's not a particularly big war. Uh, there are many kings involved, but Abraham's contribution to the army is, is just a few hundred. So uh, we're not talking about uh, armies of millions or, or hundreds of thousands. These are fairly small. But Abraham is returning from battle, and he has spoils of war, and he makes an offering to a priest king. Now, priest kings are common in the pagan world, but in the law, uh, this was not allowed. Uh, Priests were from Levi, kings were from Judah. Religion and politics were separated in that sense, that the the highest political figure, the king, uh, was not allowed to be the priest because the priest was from a different tribe. But here we have not only a priest who is a king, but he's a Canaanite. I mean, he's a Jebusite. It's Melchizedek. And, and to make it even stranger, he's superior to Abraham. And that's an argument that the Hebrew writer makes in Hebrews chapter 7. Abraham gives 
Melchizedek a tithe, and Melchizedek blesses him. It's an amazing passage. And this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, is referred to again in Psalm 110. That's the next time he appears. And that's a messianic psalm. You will recall, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And, and it continues. And it, in Psalm 110, we see that the Messiah, the son of David, is not only David's Lord, but he's also a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And the third place we saw Melchizedek is in the book of Hebrews, where we're told that this is really the meaty Bible study. I guess you can just look for nice verses and, and, and you know, read um, at a very superficial level. That's the milk that the Hebrew writer speaks of at the end of chapter 5. But meat is so much better. And he tells us an example of meat are the passages about Melchizedek. So Genesis 14 itself points to Christ by way of Melchizedek with Psalm 110. And, uh, you know, I mean, how many passages do you need to know or did you need to know if you were going to be reaching out uh, to Jews in the first century? Maybe a few dozen would work as long as you understood all the themes, how everything worked together. The next passage is in Genesis 22. This is worth an entire study for sure. Um, I find 10 amazing points of contact between the sacrifice of Isaac, as it's called, and the sacrifice of Jesus. Really, for Isaac, they call it the binding of Isaac, because Isaac isn't killed although Abraham reasoned that he would come back from the dead after he had been sacrificed. But there's so many parallels. And uh, uh, one of them, if you want to listen to my podcast on Abraham, you'll find it. But, but many writers have spoken of this. Many speakers have written about this. Uh, one of the uh, most amazing ones is that uh, Isaac's sacrifice was going to take place in the region of Moriah. And you'll see Moriah in Second Chronicles 3.1 is where the temple was built. And it's also where Jesus was sacrificed, yeah, this, this region where those three sacrifices took place. In fact, another sacrifice in the same place, uh, and this was before the temple. If you look in, uh, at the end of 2 Samuel, a plague is stopped when David offers a sacrifice at that, at that same location. So it's a place of sacrifice, but there are many other uh, parallels. For example, Jesus carries the cross, at least at the beginning. Isaac carries the wood. You can look at the parallels, but it's uh, quite amazing. And in Judaism already, by the first century, there uh, was a tradition of thought among the rabbis that the Messiah would bear the sins, that he would be a sacrifice himself. And then another passage in Genesis, and uh, we're not going to spend as much time on Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but, I, but I, you'll get the general idea, is in Genesis 49. And there we have this passage about the, the Lion of Judah. This is where uh, Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. And he certainly gives a great blessing uh, to, to Joseph and to Judah, although all of the sons are mentioned. They were, um, all, all of them are, are spoken of. But for our purposes, it's a messianic prophecy about the Lion of Judah. And that was understood, not just by Christians, that was understood by Jews to be referring to uh, the Messiah. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, those Jewish writings discovered in 1947 and following, the passage, Genesis 49, refers to the Messiah, one of the greatest rabbis of, of Judaism ever in the Middle Ages, Maimonides, um, also believed that this passage referred to David and to a greater David, a descendant of David, who was the Messiah. And then just one other passage in Genesis, 
uh, it's that time, it's the last chapter where uh, Jacob has just died and Joseph is talking to his brothers and his brothers are, they just want to make sure there's no revenge or Joseph doesn't want to get back at them for what they had done in selling him into slavery and so forth and really eating up 22 years of his life. And uh, Joseph says, you meant it for harm. He refers to his abduction and you know, being sold into slavery. Originally, some of them wanted to kill him. You meant it for harm, but God intended it for good. Joseph was sold into slavery, it's true, but it ended up in Egypt, and because of events, call it God's providence, he landed in a position to save his people from famine because he ended up being the vizier of Egypt, you know, like the, uh, you know, kind of like the number two man in the entire country. And that is very much like Acts 2. Uh, look, look at verse 23, where it's God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and yet the deed was done with the help of wicked men. It was wrong that Jesus was crucified. It was uh, wicked that, that uh, Joseph was sold by his brothers. But in each event, God meant it for good we are able to see so many Old Testament characters, uh, men and women, who in a way represent the Messiah. Joseph is just one of many. And I would encourage you to, to learn more. But just from Genesis, look what we've done. We've looked at Genesis 3. We didn't actually look at them because I didn't read them. I just referred to them. But, but you got the idea. 3, 12, 14, 22, 49, and 50. I'll give you six passages. Uh, maybe those are the six best known. I wouldn't say they're no more. What about Exodus? Well, I mean, Exodus, the people are led out of Egypt through water. They're cleansed. You think of the immediate uh, connections with Christian baptism, with redemption. The Exodus event is, you know, the Passover, Exodus 12, going through the sea, Exodus 14, is the most significant and typical or prototypical redemption event in the entire Old Testament. Just as in the New Testament, we would have Jesus' uh, resurrection, his death and resurrection. And going through the water, uh, which is slightly after over, uh, after over the, the sacrifice of Passover, would, would be the baptism, which was slightly after Jesus' death and resurrection because there was a delay uh, before people were baptized in the name of Jesus. But there are plenty of parallels. And I got so excited about Exodus a few years ago, and I, I did a podcast, not podcast series, I did a, a teaching series, 10 classes just on Exodus. Um, every book of the Bible points to Jesus, and I'm just saying every book of the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, all five books point to Jesus. Leviticus, for example, Leviticus 17, the blood. There's no f- forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And you have the seven major kinds of sacrifice in the early chapters of Leviticus and many other passages. Uh, I love Leviticus 14, for example, the, the sacrifice uh, of, the, of the pigeons. Not the pigeons, the, uh, well, yeah, there's a, uh, there's a live dove and then there's one who's killed. And the live one is dipped in the blood of the other, although not just blood, he's actually dipped in water in which there's blood and and wood, and this was interpreted by some early Christians as as a type of, uh, of of baptism. So Leviticus has some really cool stuff. Numbers, I mean, Numbers twenty four would probably be the major messianic prophecy viewed by uh, Christians and Jews alike. And 
and it connects. And it's, it's strange, but it's a, one of the prophecies of Balaam, son of Beor, a non-Christian, another figure like, uh, not like Melchizedek, but maybe not as good as Melchizedek. Balaam's motives are messed up, as we see in Second Peter, Jude, well, e- even in Numbers 22 to 24. But in this passage, the Spirit of God falls on this man, Balaam, and he, and he prophesies about the future. This was understood as a messianic passage by um, by the Jews, and that's why the Christians used it in outreach, and, and they too were convinced. What about Deuteronomy? Well, the one I find the most impressive is in Deuteronomy 18. And perhaps I'll read this one for us. And this passage is used in uh, Acts chapter 3, for example, and it's a a passage that talks about a second Moses, a second Moses. Well, yes, a prophet like Moses. So you can see how, how Peter used this, this in Acts chapter 3. I will read uh, here, starting in verse 15. Uh, it's a vital passage. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Okay, let me just pause. This is Moses speaking to Israel, and he's saying that there'll be a prophet like me who will be raised up among you. So it's going to be a Jewish person, a prophet like Moses. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all you have asked of the Lord your God. I'll go on a bit further. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall uh, come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, uh, you must listen uh, at your own risk. Could you fail to listen to this man? Well, who was the prophet like Moses? Well, remember, Moses was a priest. He's a Levite. We think of Aaron as the first high priest, but Moses is, you know, he's from the priestly tribe of Levi. He is a leader of the people. This is before the monarchy. So he's someone who leads his people, kind of like David, but a leader, someone who does miracles. Think of the miracles that Moses does. He brings them to safety. He brings them uh, salvation. Moses is associated with salvation in the Old Testament. He led the people out of the slavery of Egypt. So this figure who leads his people, does miracles, and you can find a couple other parallels. This is the first Moses. But unless Moses was wrong, this prophecy is fulfilled not in... I may have put that the wrong way there. Uh, There's no direct fulfillment of what Moses said in the Old Testament. And I believe Moses was right in what he said. So if he's right, it must be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's no figure in the Old Testament who's the leader of the people, who does miracles, who brings them to salvation, who is associated with with Scripture. I mean, Moses is given credit for the first five books, even though he probably only wrote parts of them, but they're still called the books of Moses. Uh, Because of Jesus, we have an entire New Testament, all all those books. You know, both of them are lawgivers. That seems to be uh, what Matthew is getting across in the Gospel of Matthew. Moses, uh, Jesus is a second Moses. So you can see how Deuteronomy helps the Christian cause. Who is the figure? Who who fulfills the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18? No one in the Old Testament. 
and then comes Jesus. Well, I think you can get the general idea here. (laughs) Here's the general idea. First, each book points to the Messiah, and convincingly. And uh, moreover, what this means is that Jesus was not grabbing at straws. The early Christians were not stretching things. They had an arsenal. They they had uh, plenty of reasons, plenty of ammo, uh, if you want to use that, that image, in the, in the arsenal as they were um, advancing the gospel. Every book of the law points to Jesus Christ. In our next lesson, we're going to see how Christ is visible um, in the Old Testament prophets.